Pediatrician is a podcast of the Alabama chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics, designed to bring the latest news and updates in child health to pediatricians across Alabama. We'll be covering a range of topics from advocacy and practice management to mental health and injury prevention and everything in between. So whether you're a pediatrician in Birmingham or Mobile, in Pine Level or Slap Out, this podcast is for you. Welcome back to the Alabama Pediatrician Podcast. I'm your host today, Dr. Kim Middleton, Area 1 representative of the Alabama chapter of the AAP. Today I have joining us again is Dr. Wes Stubblefield, who is a previous community pediatrician in Florence, Alabama, and a prior Alabama chapter president. He has since become the district medical officer of the Alabama Department of Public Health and selected recently as a Public Health and Primary Care Leadership Institute Fellow with Emory University. Welcome back, Dr. Stubblefield. Thank you for letting me come back. And for those of you just listening in, make sure to check out Dr. Stubblefield's talk on disaster preparedness. Preparedness, say that <laughs> word. <laughs> All right, so Dr. Stubblefield, how did you get involved with the Alabama Department of Public Health? So um, back in medical school, I was very interested in doing public health work um, but ended up going into primary care and had always had that in the back of my mind, I would go back. So then in later, I think it was 2016, uh, while my daughter was in high school, I decided to go back and do my master's in public health at UAB. Um, and then in 2021, um, after she went to college and, uh, during the COVID pandemic, I was recruited by Dr. Landers and Dr. Harris to come on as a, as a medical officer um, after 14 and a half years in private practice. Wow. And how are you liking it? It's, it's a fascinating job. Um, I get to do so many different kinds of things that I, I hadn't done since residency. Um, I get to work with, uh, I get to work with sexually transmitted infections. I get to work with tuberculosis, disaster preparedness. I get to work with the WIC program, with immunization I get to oversee the local health departments um, and and their immunization programs and their nursing staff. Um, so it's it's just it's it's a it's a wide ranging job. Um, we have six public health districts, none of which have a medical officer. So um, so I'm the only district medical officer, even though we have six districts. Um, so we cover I cover primarily 23 counties in North Alabama. Um, but if people have concerns about children, I, I cover pretty much all the counties. That's really awesome. And I can see that that definitely makes an impact on the entire state, not just the little your practice before. Yeah. And that was and that was my hope is that maybe I could become, you know, a pediatrician for, um, you know, part of the state and maybe not, not just part of a town, even though pediatrics was was highly enjoyable and highly rewarding. Um, it was a it was just a, a different phase in my career and, and something that I'd always looked forward to doing. That's wonderful. So recently, the FDA approved the new RSV vaccine for infants, Nirsevimab or Bayfortis. How long will it take for insurance to approve coverage and pediatric offices to receive and be able to store the vaccines and for it to be used? So we're still working through um, some of the initial steps before the medications, um, before this starts to ship out. Um, the as, as you know, as you may have heard, the, the VFC program did approve Nirsevimab or Bayfortis um, to be on the VFC program, even though it's not a traditional vaccine, which, which had not happened before. Um, it, um, this, this, this treatment, this monoclonal antibody is, um, 
is effective at reducing some of the uh, some of the more severe complications of RSV disease or RSV disease in general, and it's be, it's recommended to be given to all infants um, based on their underlying risk factors and the age that they are entering their first RSV season. Um, we are currently in discussion with uh, the primary in- providers in terms of Medicaid and the insurance companies and uh, making sure that we have the steps in place to have this available, but we do not have a release date yet, but we hope to, we hope to hear about that soon. Do you think it would be recommended to also have it in um, hospital settings, like in the nursery, for example? That's, that's difficult because uh, generally nurseries haven't been VFC providers. So, um, so we don't, we don't exactly know how that would work, but we're, that is a consideration and something we're, we're looking into. Okay. Um, speaking of vaccines too, uh, what trend have you seen in the past few years regarding vaccine usage overall? So one thing that we've, we've continued to see over time has been, um, has been declining rates in a kind of across our population, but in, in specifically in the children that are uh, 19 to 40, 47 months. Um, so in this age group, the number of children who are complete on what we call their bundle, so the, the vaccines that are in this particular bundle that's tracked, has slowly decreased over time. And, and this started before the, before the COVID-19 pandemic, obviously not helped by the pandemic. So, um, so we're, making, we're trying to get word out there about the importance of routine childhood vaccines, making sure that parents know to ask their providers when they come in for any reason, are they up to date? Um, whether, you know, if they are in this window where they may have missed some visits um, and then getting information out there about, about uh, for providers and how to talk to families about vaccination and the importance of vaccination. That is very unfortunate that we're having a decline in the rates. What have you seen in terms of COVID vaccine rates? What would you say the percentage is? So um, the COVID vaccine rates have have been relatively low, and of course they they are uh, they are exactly like you would expect. They're the highest in older individuals, and they step down in every age group going down into infancy. And of course, some of that being that the vaccine was released and you know and not not available for certain age groups and certain populations over time, um, but also just the uh, the thought in the population about about the COVID nineteen vaccine. What we have found is that the vaccine continues to be safe and effective. Uh, we continue to do research and um, and post administration surveillance of the vaccines through multiple mechanisms um, to make sure that the vaccine is safe and effective. And then now. Um, we will have this uh, this new monovalent focused 2023 COVID-19 vaccine to be released, hopefully within the next uh, uh, four to five weeks. Okay. Um, you had mentioned that hospitals don't all have prostaglandins available for infants. Can you elaborate more on that? Sure. So, um, so I, th- I would imagine that uh, most, if not all, pediatricians listening to this um, have taken care of a baby with uh, with critical cyanotic congenital heart disease, um, and and we all know how life saving prostaglandins can be. Those prostaglandins, if not available in in local hospitals, um, if a baby is born or presents to an emergency room um, after birth, then if those aren't available, they would have to either come from a, another facility or potentially even on transport. Um, and that time can be can be life threatening. And so, what we want pediatricians to do, we're we're working with the hospital association and others um, to talk to the hospitals about what are the underlying rates of congenital heart disease and 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 specifics about the medication, so they can look into that. But we're also encouraging pediatricians, maybe pediatricians that are active on med exec committees or potentially pediatricians that are active on pharmacy and therapeutics committees to talk to their administration and their pharmacists about what it would mean to stock this medicine. Is it stocked? Is it rotated? 
Um, and it is, is it available at your delivery hospital? So uh, more, to, more to come on that. What are some other things the public health department wants pediatricians statewide to know about um, or updates such as this prostaglandin shortage? So a couple of other things that we're thinking about right now, um, and you may see by the time you hear this, you may have heard this in the news that we've had two cases of eastern equine encephalitis uh, down in Baldwin County. Um, it's very it's very unfortunate because this disease, when it is neuroinvasive, can cause severe illness and mortality in up to 30 percent of people um, and, and persistent neurologic effects in, in many others. Um, the, um, this, this virus is not new to the United States, and there are cases reported every year, generally in Gulf states, um, but it, we have not had any cases in Alabama since 2019. Um, and so we want pediatricians to be aware that this, especially those on the, in the uh, coastal counties, to be aware that this, um, this is circulating. Uh, it's in the mosquito pools, and, um, and we, we are encouraging the public, not only the local municipalities, uh, to, to make sure that they're doing their spraying and their vector control programs um, and continuing with surveillance, but also that our, our families understand about uh, the safety of, of insect repellents, how to safely apply insect repellents, the importance of their use. These particular mosquitoes that carry this virus are dawn and dusk feeders. Um, and, um, and so we want people to be aware that that's the time that they're out. These also are not ones that you can, um, that you can eliminate by, by eliminating standing water in your yard, although that's good practice for other types of mosquitoes and, and a good general practice. Um, and that's why the spraying programs are so important. The other thing that we've, we've thought about um, lately has been, um, has been a rise in the number of TB cases that we've seen. Uh, both TB disease and what used to be called a latent TB or, or TB infection. Um, so we, we've seen both and we've seen an increase in both in the state. Uh, this may have to do with, um, with COVID-19. It may have to be that, that cases went undiagnosed and are, and, are now, um, and are now starting to appear. We know that uh, generally younger children don't spread TB, they get TB. Um, and so these are, these are generally adults giving TB to, to kids. And we know that there can be extended families living in small households and makes it a very good um, a way to transmit the bacterium. So, um, so we want pediatricians to be thinking about tuberculosis. Um, some risk factors might include having family members who, um, or the, the person themselves may have lived in a TB endemic country for some period of time or be born in a TB endemic country. Um, they also may have, even if they were born in the U.S., they may have family members that were born in TB endemic countries. Um, and then finally, there have been uh, an increased number that we've seen particularly clustered within the poultry industry in North Alabama. So that might be another another case if you if you have a child that comes in who um, has a persistent infiltrate, who uh, you can't quite figure out what's going on, um, you know, antibiotics are just not working that well, uh, you may want to consider TB as an alternative diagnosis. Okay. So there is a new law that prohibits smoking and vaping in vehicles with children, which is a wonderful win for pediatric health. Are there any upcoming focuses that the Department of Public Health has for children? I don't know of anything specific at this point. Um, you know, it, it always will change once we get into the um, once we get into the legislative session about what what will be out there. Um, this this new law does uh, does make it a a crime to uh, to use smoke and vaping products in a ch in a car with a person under the age of fourteen that's a passenger. So we do feel like that this could help reduce some of the secondhand smoke and vaping second products that come out of those devices um, in terms of uh, in terms of affecting children and children's lungs. Okay. And previously, uh, the multi-system inflammatory syndrome 
due to COVID was a reportable diagnosis to the health department. Is it still something to be reported? What are other diagnoses that should be reported to the state? So all of the reportable diagnoses are available on our website. For example, things like uh, shigatoxin um, producing E. coli. That's something that's automatically reported from laboratories to the Department of Public Health. Other times it's conditions that are reported. So uh, for example, hemolytic uremic syndrome is, report- is reportable to the Alabama Department of Public Health. Um, and so uh, I do not know specifically about MISC. I do know that um, that again those 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 reportable conditions are on our website. So I would um, make sure that people understand and, and know that. And uh, and we are looking to revamp some of our reportable conditions list in uh, at the board of health meeting coming up in September. Anything? Any other updates or anything else you would like to share with us? I can't think of anything right now. We've uh, we've covered a lot here today, and um, uh, of course, people can always contact me if they have any particular questions or concerns. Uh, the only other thing I would mention would be that um, that with RSV, we are um, we are also have an approval for an RSV vaccine in adults, um, and just recently an FDA approval for RSV vaccine for pregnant women. So, um, so we're seeing a lot of movement around around prevention of RSV in our our infants through a variety of methods. That's awesome. So again, before we wrap up today, we'd like to end each podcast with a one-line take-home point. What would yours be today? With Alabama's children, we have so many things that are happening, and there's so much going on right now. We want pediatricians to to, uh, to understand that we are trying to get information out there in our news releases and our health health alerts. So to make sure they uh, stay, up, stay up to date on the health alerts and the news releases, um, and we'll continue to work together for, uh, for the health and safety of our kids. Well, Thank you so much for all that you do, Dr. Stubblefield. All right. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And for those of you listening, um, I highly recommend checking out the Alabama Public Health Department website. Um, We'll also have some links for you in our episode blurb. So thank you for joining us and listening.